Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to another episode of I Want to Put a Baby in You. I'm Ellen Trackman, here with Jennifer White. I am here. Yes, in the midst of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic that is um, happening throughout the world and Who knows when that will end? We don't know that at this time. And uh, this interview I thought would be really depressing and sad, like all the negative things that are happening with surrogacy. And I can tell you um, it is not. It is actually inspirational and beautiful. And although we do talk with our guests about so many negative things, it actually uh, was surprisingly, shockingly upbeat. So Jen, despite all that we're going through, and you're currently sheltering in place, right? Yes, of Do you course. Anything positive that's happened throughout all this? Um, yeah. I mean, I, so I'm sure most people know because I've mentioned it before. I am married to a military member, and we live on a military base. And it's, I mean, our rules are way different even than everybody else's because, of course, you know, we we get to do what the military tells us to do, and all those things. And what I found really cool and really interesting like even like the right now so this is the day well the we're recording this right after they announced that everybody needs to have face coverings um and the military instantly clamped clamped down and said that everybody on a federal installation at all times no matter what it's not optional for us like we have to have them and what i found like the kindness and positivity. So I spent over the weekend, I sat down, took some of my husband's old t-shirts, like his military t-shirts, so that some of his troops have something that matches their uniforms. Cause that's important. They have to still match their uniforms, right? Is um, that part of the regulation? And, and it must yeah, be so stylish it has to be some, and match. It has to be, it has to at least be something that isn't a color that is fitting with the uniform. So either black or tan or the greens, you know, like those kind of <laughs> things. And so I made like a bunch for his, as many as I could for his office. But then somebody this morning, one of the somebody else reached out to their wife and was like, "Hey, I did this thing, and like I've received been receiving like tons of texts today from other military spouses now who are like, please send me your pattern. I want to do the exact same thing. I want to help them too.' Hmm. So what I'm seeing is like a like this waterfall of people who are incredible and really genuinely want to help each other out. So you know, yeah, we're socially distanced, but we're like really connecting to each other and really helping each other out in really great ways. So what about you? What are you seeing? Um, well, positive things of occurring. Well, <laughs> so now that I can't other go, positives, other yeah. positive things, I, I, now that I can't go see people or, you know, the usual things that we would do on the weekend, I did battle our front yard and this like weed has taken over and I like fought it for hours what? yesterday. So that was, I don't know that I won, but I at least tried. Uh, and lots of lots of long walks with the family and the kids. And we've been like playing Frisbee. So that's been really fun. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, so, but diving into our interview, the other positive, really amazing thing that I forgot to mention about our guest to come is that she's an attorney. My favorite Yay. interviews. So um, here we go. Welcome, Robin Pope, to the show. Thank you for joining us. Well, you're welcome, Ellen. It's actually quite a pleasure to be here and to be talking with you. Yay. And I'm always so excited to have other attorneys on. So yay, attorneys. I don't (laughs) know if our listeners find them the most interesting, but I think they're especially interesting. 
So Robin, before we kind of dive into the interesting topics of today, which will be, you know, this will be kind of either a very timely episode or a kind of a very interesting historic episode of what was happening at this time, because we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And so the plan is to talk about how so many intended parents and surrogates are being affected by the pandemic. But before we go into all that, I would love to let our listeners hear a little bit about you and your practice and what got you into this. So um, tell us about yourself. All right. Um, So I am uh, a born-again Oregonian who grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut and ended up out here to go to law school many, many years ago now. My husband and I decided that I would go to law school where we would want to stay and live. So he ended up with a job at a very small company at the time called Intel. Uh, (laughs) 10 year old company. And we've been out here ever since. And our son was born out here. And um, I graduated from Lewis and Clark Law School in 1981 and was admitted to the Oregon State Bar and have been a practicing attorney ever since then. Wow. And in 1981, when you were graduating, did you tell everyone, they said, what kind of law do you want to do? And you said, I am going to do assisted reproductive technology law. Did did you Uh, tell everyone that? Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I actually, at the beginning of law school, had said, oh, I know an area I never want to do, and that's family law. What what did I end up doing after graduation? Of course. (laughs) I got a job uh, clerking for one of... um, our circuit court judges here who primarily did family law work. And so I learned family law really, really fast and then ended up after clerking for him for a year, working for one small law firm and then a second one where all we did was family law. So I became a family law attorney. And did you change your mind or did you enjoy it? Um, I, I did enjoy it and I was very competent and good at it, did a lot of litigation, custody, Um, divorce work, and then started doing some adoption work. That would have been in the mid-1980s and was like, oh, well, these are much more fun (laughs) for the most part. Um, You at least feel like you're doing really positive things with people versus uh, the negative piece of contested family law cases. Yeah. I mean, I always like to think for family law, it's so messy and hard, but that you play such an important role of protecting someone who's in that terrible yes. situation, right? But. Yes. And you're helping people get through probably one of the most traumatic exactly. uh, times in their life. Yeah. Um, so spread to adoption. Yep. So I spread to adoption. Um, the f- very first adoption case I handled was a case where the birth mother revoked her consent after my clients had had their baby for five weeks. Uh-huh. And after doing discovery and um, case law, you know, checking out the case law on that, realizing that my clients were going to lose if we went to trial. So we ended up giving the baby back. And that's how I dove into adoption law. Um, And it was like, oh, so this isn't always pleasant. (laughs) But what it did was it taught me how to do it better and to be a better advocate for my clients. And also just to look at the process overall and see how it can be done so that everyone comes out of it better. Yeah. So I incorporated that into what I did. Um, Then in 1989, our son was born, and we actually went through several years of infertility treatment to have him, which is ultimately how I ended up branching off into this area of law, along with the adoption work. I still remember, you know, being in the 
clinic with my infertility doc, you know, and you know, you're on the table and your feet are in the stirrups and you're going, why do I have to go through this? You know, why me? You know, and my doctor's going, Robin, there's a reason, there's a reason you may not know it yet. We've stayed kind of collegial kind of friends over the years. Yeah. And he said, see, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I was just prepping you for this. (laughs) Absolutely. He was just helping me along. Um, So I would say in the early 1990s, I ended up taking a course through our professional liability fund, What Else Can You Do With Your Law Degree? And the other uh, people in the course convinced me that, gosh, you really like adoption. Why don't you just do adoptions? So that's what I did. I ended up phasing out of doing family law, contested work, um, ended up just doing adoption work for a number of years. And right around that same time as when we did the first gestational surrogacy case in Oregon around 1991. And did you do one of the first gestational surrogacy cases in Oregon? I did. Wow. And my clients, the intended parents, a friend of theirs offered to be their surrogate, and they had to adopt their baby. Oh, yep. (laughs) And they had to have a home study, which I found even more offensive. Wow. So I ended up working with our Department of Human Services and convincing them that if it's a surrogacy pregnancy, they should waive the home study, which they ended up adopting a rule that allowed that to happen. Wow. So, so for a every, number of everyone in Oregon to be thank say thank you, Robin. <laughs> thank that's you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so for a number of years, that's how we created legal parentage for intended parents in Oregon was they had to adopt their baby. And that was not acceptable to most people. And clients would say, why do we have to do this? And I'd go, hey, good good question. Um, but over the years I'd also been doing legislative work for the Oregon State Bar on adoption issues. And the small group of us lawyers in Oregon who were doing that work all agreed we didn't really want to go to the legislature and change the law because you never know what happens when you try to do that. (sighs) Unintended consequences, yeah. Absolutely. So we left it alone and I was on an Oregon Law Commission work group with a colleague who was our guru in Oregon for paternity work and said, Larry, help me out here. Got to come up with some other way to do this. And so he went home and thought about it, called me up and said, hey, have you ever looked at our declaratory judgment statute? Well, I had not. So he said, go look at it. And I did. And he and I are like, huh. Did some research, found a court of appeals case that said you can use that statute to create legal parentage, legal relationships, and you can use it to create paternity. And we were pretty sure that with our court of appeals and Supreme Court in Oregon, that if you could do paternity, you could do maternity. Mm-hmm. I d- drafted up a petition and a judgment. Larry looked at it. Tim Brewer down in Eugene, a colleague of mine, he looked at it. We tweaked it. And then I went and talked to judges in our tri-county area and said, hey, this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. Um, And here's how I propose we do it. Would you please look at this and tell me if you would be willing to sign these judgments? So you didn't you didn't even have a case in front of them. You just went no. to them direct to the source to just say, Correct. "Hey, is this something that's acceptable to you?" Right. And you know, we have I think really good judges in the state of Oregon um, over the years, and they all went and looked at it, thought about it, talked about it, asked some questions, and said, "Yes, we'll sign these." I'm like, "Oh, sweet!" Wow. <laughs> then the trick was, how do we get vital records to issue an amended birth certificate? Mm. So I sent the whole thing over to Vital Records and with an explanation, and they ran it past the Attorney General's office and came back to me and said, 
If you give us a court-certified copy of the signed judgment, we will amend the birth records and issue a birth certificate for the intended parents, the le- who are now the legal parents, would be, um, and you don't have to do an adoption. And I'm like, bingo. What a trailblazer. That's amazing. That right? You were one of first figuring out each of the steps for, for families. That's amazing. And then what I needed was clients willing to test this. And they came right along and they're like, oh. absolutely, we will be your beta testers. And it worked. And so since then, that's what I've done. And all the lawyers I know in Oregon who do this work use that process. And over the years, we've tweaked it, refined it. Tim Brewer and I in particular have worked at making sure that we kind of update things. We've simplified it. And we now have a process in place where they even came up with a filing fee specifically for our cases. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Filing fee. Hopefully, lower, filing low, fee. hopefully <laughs> lower than other filing fees. Well, no? actually, considering how little time the court spends on it, it's kind of a <laughs> stiff filing fee, but we've mm. all decided we don't care. So <laughs> we get what we want, so we're good with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have not had to go to the legislature. We were able to utilize an existing statute and create a new process, and it works. Wow. And that's today. Like, there's no, that's today. no law in Oregon specifically addressing Correct. surrogacy. Wow. But Correct. it works. Correct. Congrats. So I think, so my understanding is because of this, you have this friendly jurisdiction, you do have a lot of intended parents and surrogates who are using Oregon, their, that jurisdiction, to grow their family. Correct. We are considered a very popular state for a number of very legitimate reasons. Uh, One would be the current legal process. And we've been using this legal process for, it's between 12 and 15 years now. And so people are attracted to that, particularly international intended parents, because before, if you had to do an adoption, you had to stay around. Right. Legal parents, it took several months. Now it's like, most of my clients can leave within a week after their baby's born. For some countries, they have to wait longer because the judgment can't be signed until after the baby's born. But even then, within two to three weeks post-birth, I can get them a birth certificate. They can go home. Yeah, that's fast. So that's we great. have that. We have uh, one of the top clinics in the country, ORM. So you guys you guys have a lot of really great clinics in Oregon. Right. Yeah. Um, we have several other clinics that are very good. We have a lot of young women in Oregon who apparently are very willing to be surrogates. <laughs> and we have a reputation for our lifestyle here yes. that I think people I feel find like very Oregon, attractive. I also feel like you're describing Colorado. I feel like Oregon I know, has right? many similarities. All of that sounds Absolutely. the same. I, I was thinking that, thinking, oh, I should mention Colorado here. Yes. <laughs> very similar, but I hear you. Those you know, exact people who are draw people. Out- People who are outdoors more, people who mm-hmm. tend to eat healthy foods, right. um, different approach to lifestyle, not as frenetic as some you know, major cities. Um, so we look at all that. We look at um, the medical clinics, the available pool of surrogates. We look at the law or the lack thereof, and we say, huh, that's pretty cool. So people are coming here many, many people from all over the world and from all over the United States to do surrogacy because of those things. That's great. So today is April 3rd, 2020. Has anything changed in your practice or for your clients because of the, uh, <laughs> the virus? You're not leading a question at all there. <laughs> <laughs> when 
wouldn't you be surprised if I said, oh, no, no changes. <laughs> no, everything's the same. It's fine. <laughs> well, first off, before going into your clients, what's the current state? Like, what are, are you guys are to stay at home order, I'm guessing? What are things looking are. like there? Is there yep. toilet paper on the shelves? Uh, not a lot. I was at the grocery store early this morning, and let me tell you, um, there was paper towels, but not much toilet paper and no hand soap. Yes. Oh, no hand soap. <laughs> and, and can I ask you, what did you wear to the grocery store? Are you guys like masks, oh. gloves? Did- oh, um, I didn't. Some people do. Uh, the grocery stores around where I am are being really good. They are cleaning off the carts um, right when you go in the store. One of the stores I go to is limiting how many people can go into the store at a time, oh. which I really like. And then when you, if you wait in line, are they? Do they have like the exit? They, they mark off. Six, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then they have big circles in this particular store. It's called New Seasons, and you're supposed to stay, you know, away from each other. And then when you get to the checkout, they also separate you, and only one person at a time goes to the checkout. They have plexiglass in front of the checkout clerks. They clean off the you know, the conveyor belt and all of that stuff before, you know, you get to move up to the, in the line. So they're being very, very particular. The store I was in this morning wasn't quite as particular, but again, one person at a time, everybody else stay back, stay six feet apart. Um, So there's, there's a lot of caution. And I mean, there's almost no traffic on the roads. Things have changed quite a bit that way. Um, So people in Oregon that I can see where I am, people are really paying attention to the stay-at-home request. That's great. And we're on that until the end of April. And I suspect it will go beyond that. And you're healthy? Your loved ones Uh, are healthy? So far, knock on wood, I'm healthy. And um, my family is healthy as far as I know. Our son lives near us, but not with us. So what I've seen change in the last, I would say, really since the end of January, because I have a number of Chinese clients and they were starting to have some real problems. Um, first of all, getting here for their baby's birth. Yeah. Um, and then if they were here, um, they were worried about trying to get home once the baby was born. And most of my Chinese clients like to stay here for usually one to three months with the baby before they head home. And right now they don't have a choice. If they're here, they get to stay. Yeah. Um, right. And then I was getting emails from clients in China going, I can't get a flight. I can't leave the country. The U.S. isn't <sighs> going to let me in. What do I do? Yeah. So I actually started seeing the changes uh, toward the end of January. We had to start looking for alternatives. So who takes care many, of these babies? How many babies do you have at your house right now? I don't have any babies <laughs> in my house. <laughs> um, I had three Chinese clients whose babies were born in February, and the intended parents have yet to meet their babies. Oh, they have not been able to leave wow. China, and they've not been able to get into or into the U.S. and then to Oregon. So we have, um, in one case, a set of grandparents who were here for one of the babies. They're they're still here, and they're taking care of two babies. And in uh, the third third situation. The surrogate is taking care of the baby, and my client is paying her to do that. We had to prepare an additional power of attorney. So here we'd gone to all this trouble to to um, uh, terminate her parental rights, her legal right. rights, and then we had to like <laughs> temporarily give them Reverse back, that. give them back, yeah. right? <laughs> and and the hard part is trying to get legal documentation from other countries because at least until very recently we couldn't get FedExes or you know any kind of you know, quick delivery. 
and also in places like China, it's very difficult for them to get their signatures notarized. I, I was going to say, you can't go to the consulate either, right? Right. So it was like, eh, stuck between a rock and a hard spot. And I take it um, Oregon courts doesn't like the electronic e-notaries. Is that, it, not they the that? didn't used to. They're starting to like it more. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, they'll come around. Right. But in Oregon, and I actually researched this a couple of years ago because for a lot of surrogates, for whatever reason, they don't get themselves to a notary very easily to sign documents. Well, we don't have a requirement that these documents be signed in front of a notary. So the power of attorney does not have to be notarized. There's absolutely no law in Oregon that requires that. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Therefore, I prepare a POA that doesn't have a notary uh, piece on it. And what we do is we have a declaration under our rules of civil procedure where basically she's swearing under the penalty of perjury that everything is true and accurate in the document, whoever signs it. Mm-hmm. So we are using that declaration rather than notarization. That makes things a little bit simpler. And most of the time, we're able to work off of scanned copies and not original documents. So that's heartbreaking that you, they're, you're working with intended parents who still have not met their children. And Absolutely. there's no workaround. Is there, you can't fly to a third country and quarantine there? There's, there's no... They kind of... thought about it, but they weren't able to do that. And now just wow. about every third country has shut down Dang. also. Right. Yeah. Um, the number of countries available to do that are slim to none at this point. A month ago, it was different. Now it's not. Yeah, everything's so fast and how quickly it changes. Yes. So that's different. And that's the piece where, you know, can the intended parents get here? So that's one piece. Then you have the second piece. Once they're here, they're here for the baby. The baby gets born. We get them the legal documents and the birth certificate that they need. And three weeks ago is when they shut down the passports. Was it three or only two? Maybe it was only two I, weeks I say ago. I think it was only two weeks ago, but it feels yeah. like it feels like years ago at this point. It it does. Um, and I had several clients who were caught up in that. Um, I had one set of clients who got really lucky. Their baby was born, I think, around the fifth of March. And we have this amazing um, clerk at our Oregon Vital Records office in Portland, Debbie. Several years ago, she shout out to Debbie. Shout out. I don't know if you listen to the podcast, Debbie, but thank you. Right. (laughs) We love Debbie. (laughs) She had gone to her manager and said, listen, there are all these people who want quick birth certificates for these international intended parents. What if we started charging an expedite fee? And her manager said, great idea. So they did. (laughs) So for the last four years, if we pay $30 per child extra, they promise us a birth certificate in three business days. It's amazing. So every year, a small group of us, we buy treats for Debbie in her office. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And they deserve every treat they get. Well, we can get those birth certificates. And normally what we would say is, okay, now go apply for the U.S. passport. There are several ways to do that. We're about three and a half hours from Seattle. I typically recommend to clients, go up the night before, stay overnight. You'll have an 8 or 9 a.m. appointment. You'll pick up your passport that same afternoon. And then mm-hmm, right. you can fly home from Seattle. You can come back to Portland, whatever. Check out the original Starbucks while you're there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, go walk through the Pikes Place Market, whatever. Um, and typically, so my clients who were here with like the March 5th baby, we'd already established their parentage pre-birth. Boom, within less than a week, I had their birth certificates. And I said, don't wait around. Get go to there. Seattle. Get it passport. quick. Yeah. And they did, and they got one of the last flights out to Spain, and they got home. 
Wow. And but wow. the rest of the people whose babies were born around the 10th to 15th and later, yeah, they're all still here. Yeah. yeah. Now, my one set of clients, and I think you had seen the article in the UK Guardian, um, my clients are from the UK. They're UK citizens. They live in Amsterdam. Um, they worked with their attorney in the UK and with me. We got them all the documents that they needed. They got UK citizenship for their baby in one day in what normally takes six months. Wow. 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 And just to clarify, the way it normally works is that no matter where intended parents are from, their baby who's born here generally gets a US passport because they're born in the US and therefore US citizens gets that passport and then goes home. But they don't generally apply for kind of that home country passport because it tends to take much longer. Correct. So the because the child's born here in Oregon, the child is automatically US citizen under the US Constitution. They're entitled to that US passport as proof of citizenship. So yes, they get that, they go home, and then when they get home, they may file a supplementary proceeding in their home country and eventually obtain a second passport for their child in their home country. Yeah. So your UK parents, they couldn't get a US passport, so they were able, amazingly, to cut a system process down to a day to get their child a passport, to build a UK passport to go home. Correct. So they got the citizenship in one day, and then it took an additional week, but they WhatsApped me two days ago a copy of the emergency passport they have. So they're this weekend. (laughs) And those are always the cutest with a little baby picture. There's I know. <laughs> Come on, brand they, new newborn baby. Keep your eyes open. Keep your head this way. Right. And they have an amazing story they get to tell. And then I have some French clients who are stuck here. And I and their other lawyer convinced them to go deal with the French consulate in L.A. And they've been working with them for the last two weeks. And just yesterday were told that the French consulate was issuing a laissez-passer, which would allow them to go home. It's like a temporary identification passport Mm. kind of thing. So not a U.S. passport, but enough to get them out of the country. Enough enough to get them on an airplane. Out of the U.S. and get them (laughs) into into France. France. Yes. Um, So they're all going to be going home. In the meantime, my Chinese clients who have not met their babies Mm. still can't get here. Oh, heartbreaking. That is it really is. Yeah. Um, wow. So yes, my practice has changed a lot. I, over yeah. the last two to three weeks, I spent a lot of time. I've been working with Senator Ron Wyden's office. He's one of my U.S. senators and has an amazing staffer, Chris. Shout out to Chris. Yay. <laughs> Yay, Chris. Yay. Tra- <laughs> has been trying to help all of us with this issue regarding the passports because right now, the U.S. government is saying, we'll issue a passport if it's an emergency, but here's how we define emergency. And it does not include newborn babies born to a surrogate whose parents live in another country. What we're trying to do is convince the State Department that this situation should come under that definition of emergency. Mm -hmm. And to date, I would have to say that the State Department has not been very responsive. Okay, all of our listeners, If hopefully by the time this airs, which will probably be a few weeks from the actual recording date, that um, it won't be still be an issue. But if it is, um, get out there, contact the people you know, see what you can do to put more pressure. And, and actually, you know, contact your U.S. Senator's office, your U.S. Uh, representative's office. If you know anybody, you know, who works in any of those offices, those are good people to contact. 
Yeah. Um, the, I'm a member of a national slash international group of attorneys who do this adoption and surrogacy work. And we have formulated policy statements that have gone out to the State Department, to other people. Um, I informally collected a list of babies that were that are stuck here and then babies that are going to be born over the next several months. And I just did that over a period of a few days through our listserv and came up with over 100 babies between now oh, and August. Wow. And I know the number is greater than that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing that sometimes that's what it takes to get to get people's lives where they need to be. So I will right. tell you that aside from this episode, we have another episode that I'm, I'm will probably come after yours, uh, where we interview Carolyn Topelson, who is a woman who went to Mexico for surrogacy because she's a dual citizen with the U.S. and Mexico was able to do that and got stuck there. And it, it's I mean the whole story is kind of like amazing and crazy and a nightmare, but ultimately took finding connections to the State Department to get her and her baby yes. home. Yeah. Yes. So one thing that happened or, or helped in the UK with my UK clients, when that article from the UK Guardian came out, that same day, the home office in the UK apparently was inundated with emails and phone calls from people who'd read the article and said, help these people. That baby <sighs> needs a passport. <laughs> yes. Right. Good. Good. And that public pressure helps. Yeah. It's their constituents talking to them. Um, so that's been that's been an issue. And then another issue, which you were probably going to get to anyway, is how do people get into the U.S., these intended parents? And I have a number of clients from different countries who are going, am I going to be able to get to the U.S. and to Oregon so I can be there for my baby's birth or soon thereafter? We don't know because right now it's very difficult. And it's been, I mean, I feel like a lot of it's case by case and country by country, yes. but we definitely were talking before where there was a couple in France trying to get here and they, um, they were stopped in the airport and they said, no, the current restrictions say you have to have a U.S. child and we don't count the fact that you will have a U.S. child in a few weeks. That's not sufficient. And I Correct. think ultimately they went back and were able to argue their way and make it. But I've also heard people arguing, well, what if you already had a child by surrogacy in the U.S.? So you have another U.S. child. If you take that U.S. child with you, then you technically fall within the requirements that you have a U.S. child, which is kind of mind-blowing. It doesn't even make sense. By taking another child with you, maybe that gets you through. Well, it's interesting because when you read the exception, and I've read it several times and sent it to clients, the I'm not sure that that would necessarily work because what it says is that if you're coming here to take custody mm. of your child who's oh. a citizen under the age of, it's either 18 or 21 and not married, newborn won't be married, so we'll be good there. Hopefully. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that having a young child who is a U.S. citizen, if you're bringing them over here, I'm not sure that's going to help you get in. Now, what we've been told is that once the baby's born, you're going to have a some legal document here in Oregon. It would be a judgment of parentage, and in other places, a pre-birth order, um, sometimes a post-birth order, and then a birth certificate, which is an administrative record proving that you're the legal parent. If you have those documents, then they'll say yes, you can come in, but you're going to need to quarantine for two. I was going to say, 
And I think that's you like have- the people's logic before of getting here before, right? They're trying to be responsible right. so that they can right. quarantine, <laughs> exactly. show up early. That's why I wanted and, to quarantine earlier. Right? Like yes. we will show up two weeks in advance and sit here quietly and, you know, twiddle our thumbs and play words with friends with each other. You know? But then what happens to these babies when yeah. the intended parents either A, can't get here or got here and are in quarantine? Right. What do we do with the babies? So we're all talking about that. And Trust me, we're spending a whole lot of extra time that none of us expected to be spending. And I'm not complaining about this, but we're not getting paid. At least I'm not getting paid for this. Right. And maybe some of my colleagues charge for this time. I I don't feel I can justify that. I mean, my clients didn't create this problem. So we have this issue and we're looking at who can take care of the baby. Now, historically, I think those of us who work in this area of law, whether and then whether you're a surrogacy agency or, you know, the medical people, everybody goes, you know, it's probably not a good idea to have the surrogate take care of the baby. But sometimes that's the only choice. That's it, because people don't have family here. They don't have friends here. And they go, who do I get? I mean, she's the person I trust the most. And so different from the expectations going into this that, you know, I'm helping you to have this family, but I'm not taking responsibility. I'm not having the sleepless nights. Wait a second. Correct. And And then all of a sudden, whoops, not, not so. Now, you know, she is choosing to do that. Now, a lot of the surrogates are saying, hey, I'm up for it. I will do it because I care about this baby. I care about my intended parents. And I want to make sure that everybody is safe and sound. And they will do it. And it absolutely, I mean, I'm mind boggled by their generosity of spirit. It's incredible. Right. I mean, which is, which makes sense because to be a surrogate, you already have to have kind of that generous, amazing open heart to begin with. Yes. I, I always get annoyed with people who say, oh, they're just doing it for the money. And it's like, no, they are not. I don't no. think I've ever met a surrogate who did this for the money. Yes, the money's nice. But it's that generosity of spirit, that that ability to say, I will give someone the gift of life, which is phenomenal. Are your courts working the same in Oregon? Are they still fully operating and granting parentage orders? Um, the, the wonderful answer is yes. Yay. Okay. We, we really, in Oregon, we've been e-filing for a number of years now. Typically in a parentage case, I don't go to the courthouse. I e-file everything. I send a messenger down to get my court certified copies after the judge has signed, and I'm good to go. E-filing is still working. And kind of the ironic thing, it had been taking about two weeks to get judgments signed. And I filed two judgments this week, which today I got emails saying they were signed yesterday. Wow. (laughs) So it's faster. So it's working in our favor? Interesting. (laughs) Sort of, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. But now I can't send a messenger so I have to send a self-addressed stamp envelope so they can mail me my court certified copies because they don't want anybody who doesn't need to be there to go into the courthouse. And I totally right. understand that. Well, I have to tell you in Colorado, I'm very grateful. So our courts have gone to most of them, they, different jurisdictions are acting differently, but they've gone to limited operations. And in Boulder County, where we generally file, they went to limited operations where it has to be um, something that risks uh, an immediate risk to an individual safety or welfare. There's very specific language about what they will hear. And I had to try to file a motion to argue that, you know, these parentage orders fall within it, that it's very important that 
intended parents be able to re- be recognized as parents in the surrogate, not be recognized as having full responsibility for this child. And I, so we cannot e-file at this time, which is kind of crazy Ooh, that that's ouch. still a thing. <laughs> right. And so I actually went, I like drove up to Boulder and it had just, so they completely closed down the court and it was the day they reopened um, for a limited operation. And I couldn't even go, I started to walk in the door and the security was like, no, no, walk back out. And they're like, you have to call the number posted on the door. So there's like, literally the courthouse has a number posted on the door where you had to call a judge to talk your way in. And so sure enough, I talked to this judge by phone and he's like willing to listen to me for a second. And I try to argue this motion. He's like, no, you know, you can't even file it here. We don't have clerks. Like you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to mail it to file it. I was like, what? (laughs) But luckily he did reach out to the judge who had the case that I was particularly concerned about the moment. And she contacted me and has been still incredibly responsive and helping our intended parents and surrogates. So I've been just really grateful um, to the, to the judges who have stepped up in, in this situation and during this time. Yeah. And, and I know I, and I'm sure my colleagues who do this work, uh, I am very grateful to our, we have one particular judge in Multnomah County who typically handles the parentage judgments. And a couple of weeks ago um, she sent a small group of us, those who do most of this work, an email and said, listen, we're going to have limited hours, limited staffing at the courthouse, but e-filing is going to be working. We're going to keep going. And if you have a judgment that needs to be signed, here's my cell phone number. Please wow. text or call me or email wow. me and let me know. Yeah. And I, a big shout out to Judge Allen and her staff <laughs> because they're still working, You know, whether it's from home or not from home, I'm yeah. not sure, but they're doing it. Like I said, it got these judgments got signed in four days instead of two weeks. Um, I'm able to reassure clients in other countries who are getting very anxious. You are now effective the moment your baby's born. You are the legal parents of your child. So when you get here, we'll be able to move quickly to get the birth certificate. If they're issuing passports, we're going to hustle you right out of here. <laughs> right. Um, so I just I feel very very fortunate that we have such a cooperative and collaborative judiciary here in Oregon. I I do feel there's so much to be grateful for during these difficult times that there are people and organizations really trying to make a difference. Yes. So I did want to ask you about clients who are kind of earlier on. Um, so ASRM, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, has sent issued guidelines that basically has stopped most IVF. How are your clients um, doing that are kind of early in the process that haven't had a transfer yet? They are frustrated. Mm-hmm. They understand why. Um, but I know I've, I've read a number of articles about this issue where people are saying, you know, this is not elective. You know, being infertile is not something that you elect to be. Um, we want to continue with our treatment. But I also understand the risk that the medical people are taking. And, you know, we're talking about supplies, we're talking about people's health and safety. And what, I mean, Oregon, we're doing okay right now, but part of it is we've already been on lockdown for over two weeks and we need to stay on it. So how do you justify, you know, bringing in lots of clinic staff, people to do all of the work that needs to be done? And then some of my clients are just very philosophical about it. They're like, you know, I want to make sure that I've got everything lined up and ready to go. So when they do reopen and they start doing transfers again, I want to be right at the top of the list and ready yeah. to go. Yeah. And yeah. people are still matching, which is fascinating to me. Um, I, I have to say that, you know, a lot of work has dried up in the last two weeks where things are pretty quiet. 
And part of that's just everybody's trying to deal with what's going on. Um, and lots of us, I had to move my office home, um, which actually I'm kind of enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard the this, I, heard, I heard there's banana bread baking. Right. <laughs> well, it's already baked and it's, it, the banana bread has left the house. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and the dogs are very happy that they get to go for multiple walks a day. Yes. Um, so people are still moving forward with more caution, with more questions, more concerns, particularly international clients. I Skyped with some new clients in Israel the other day. They still plan on going ahead. And I'm like, wow, okay, you know, we'll get this done and get you ready to rock and roll. So when the clinic reopens and starts doing transfers, you can go, you know, go do your transfer. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think, I think things will continue. They will, it will be slower. There will be fewer, I think, and there will be more concerns. We will have learned things from this round. We will have learned, um, you know, people trying to get here early, which costs people money. No matter where you come from, if you have to come and stay somewhere away from your home, it's going to cost you more money. It could impact your employment. Well, and also visa requirements. You only have a certain amount of time yes. you can stay in the United States, too. So, right. you know, you, you have to start then dealing with if you attack two extra weeks on the front, are you exactly. potentially going to overstay your visa on the back end? I'm curious to see what the U.S. government's going to do about that. Because, you know, like the Chinese grandparents who are here are probably getting close to the end of their visa time. Um, and my understanding is that if you ever overstay your visa, good luck ever getting back into this country. Right. Well, I don't know if this helps or if it will apply to other visas and maybe there'll be changes. But I know um, we have an au pair, so we're very lucky that we have someone from uh, another country who helps with our children. And they issued this announcement that all the au pair visas were being extended. So for those who had to leave in May that the, I guess the State Department said they can have another month or two. Right. Well, that's, that's good news. Um, I'm glad that, you know, somebody is thinking about those issues. Right. So at least for some, some people. Right. <laughs> some people it will help. Um, so yes, I think that it will impact um, surrogacy in the United States and specifically international surrogacy. I look at what's happening and I see other countries really stepping up to the plate and trying to help these people. And I think that's going to be interesting because in some of these countries, surrogacy is illegal or it's very regulated and they are going to be looking at things differently. I know I have a group of colleagues in Israel who are, they've signed a petition and they've sent it to the Israeli government because there are a large number of Israeli intended parents stuck over here and then also who will need to come over for when their babies are born. And they're trying to deal with this, you know, and be proactive, make sure that they can get home. It sounds like in the UK, at least, now that they've gotten a couple of families, the emergency passports, they now have a process and they're going to try to streamline a little bit, make it a little bit easier for the next sets of families that need it. The French consulate is, is working with their citizens. Yeah, it's. I think we will learn. I think we will come up with some alternatives. I think one thing that will come out of it, and this is going to be interesting, is that a lot of people will be less afraid of the surrogates and letting the surrogates take care of the babies. <sighs> Yeah. And After I see, I don't know if you'd see it. Yes, I can yeah, see Yeah, you're in Colorado and I'm in Oregon. And I think our two states, the people who live in our two states, we, I think we're simpatico in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And 
I've never looked at surrogates as being very risky because in my experience, they haven't been. <laughs> you know, I've had no cases go awry. I don't have any of my colleagues telling me their cases have gone awry. It works. These surrogates say, yes, not my baby. It's your baby intended parents. Please take the baby. Right. <laughs> um, and But I listen when I go to my annual conferences and I listen to colleagues, particularly from the East Coast and the Midwest, who seem very afraid of these surrogates and they want to be punitive toward them. They put lots of clauses in their contracts that I read them and go, are you kidding me? Yeah. No, I will not let anybody sign this. Right. And I think if we have this experience now that, wow, these women will step up after saying, not my baby, you know, say, you can't get here. I will take good care of your baby until you can get here and I'll give you your baby. And that's going to happen. You, I, I really do believe that. I'm hoping that will change people's mindset towards surrogates and see them that they are so much a part of this collaborative process, this amazing collaborative process, that how can we penalize them? You know, um, And I realize you have to in some ways. You have to put carrots and sticks, you know, in front of people. So Robin, you're going to make me cry. Yeah. I, I know, right? I thought, I thought this episode was going to be like, oh, things are so terrible. They're so desperate. I mean, there's this terrible, you know, pandemic, but really this has been really uplifting that, you know, the judges and the person with the you know vital records and the surrogates are just making a world of difference. And, you know, it's just really beautiful to hear I this. Good. I, I've been seeing an increase in kindness, I think, in kindness and collaboration in a lot lot of places that I would not have expected um, as this has all happened, you know, especially, you know, cause I'm on the surrogacy agency side, of course, and I'm just watching all of these surrogacy agency owners really pull together to help each other in any way, shape and form possible and support. And I, I'm seeing it in the legal community and even just like cross organizations, you know, that, you know, the ABA and the seeds board, and we've been doing some joint ventures together to kind of help educate people just like, pulling everybody together with kindness to help each other through this really hard time. It's, it, it has been encouraging. And I really, I hope that's the lesson that comes away from this at the end is that we all hold on to that spark of kindness inside. I hope so too. And, you know, I look at, at the world and um, I haven't gone in a couple of years, but for a number of years I would do Habitat for Humanity, but overseas and I would go to a third world country. And often my son would go with me. Uh, when he was in college. Um, and one of the things I came away from every single time was what is it that we all have in common, no matter where we live and how we live? And it's children and our love of children. And I look at that and, you know, and I've incorporated that into my practice, I hope. Um, I, I believe this area of law is a very collaborative area of law, even though I am still an advocate for my clients. The, the bottom line is we all want the same thing. We all want a healthy surrogate, a healthy baby, and happy intended parents. So it's you sit there and you go, then we should all be working together to do this? Yes. And yes, you can still be advocates and you can put in protective devices and all of that. But the bottom line is we're doing this together and we all want the same thing. Absolutely. Oh, Robin, thank you so much for doing this with us. Um, absolutely inspiring. I love it. And really appreciate you sharing all that's going on during this time. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. Um, thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about it. I love it. <laughs> I love what I do. Thanks again to Robin Pope for joining us and bringing a little bit of light and positivity to all that's going on right now. 
And if you want to bring positivity to our lives, Jen, take what? it. Did you just steal the way I would normally have transitioned? Yeah. <laughs> Leave reviews. Uh, exactly. Leave, uh, we love iTunes reviews. We love it when people reach out to us. Definitely via email. We actually have a Facebook page. I mean, I say that in a questioning tone, but we actually do positively, I can affirm, have a Facebook page. Um, and we really love it if you want to send us messages through there. Lots and lots of ways to get in contact with us. Um, and we love to hear people's ideas. I know, obviously, right now our world is is filled with COVID stuff, but it's not always going to be. I'm I'm, I'm going to spread that level of possi- uh, positivity Good. here. I like your positivity. Um, Good. You know, so we're always happy to hear people's ideas and, you know, kind of we want to keep taking on because unfortunately, you know, this infertility and, you know, all these things, they don't stop. So we, we still want to keep talking about the things that are interesting to people. So please reach out and let us know. Um, and in more positivity, of course, huge thank you always, always, always to our crew to Tyler, to Amanda, to Lexi, and of course, hugest thank you of all to Chris at Work at Bird Studios, who always makes us sound as good as he, as good as he can, considering the material he has to work with. So, <laughs> and to our listeners, thank you guys yes. for staying with us. Yes, thank you so much. Bye.